0: This is Three Valleys Radio. The heart is a bloom,
1: shoots up through the stony ground. But there's no room,
0: and it's time for another of our in conversation series.
1: Space to live in this town, you're out of luck,
0: and the reason that you had to care. Each week, we catch up with a present or former Yobotown player or a celebrity fan to discuss their life within the sport. And we catch up with a bit of their favourite music as well. And this week, it's a Three Valleys Radio exclusive. As Thorpey, Hilda and I put Jake Edwards, former Everton striker and now the president of the USL, the United Soccer League, through his paces. So join us for a very, very interesting session. Feet. McCabe bullets front. in the earliest goal in the history of the final is Ross LeWall more than willing to sacrifice his body. I'll tell you this, you're a center back, you know that you've got someone behind you you can trust. Into the final third, this smacked in! Oh my goodness, what a goal! Junior Burgos! You couldn't have dreamed that goal. Barrett plays the long diagonal ball and played it perfectly. Well, Max. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that with the goal. Oh, what a finish. What a finish. And that ball was all set up by Patty. As Kiffy. Kiffy. A blast. He it! Angulo! Oh
2: my! Oh! Jose Angulo pulls one back for Hartford and we're tied in
0: the 54th. And that came out of nope. Long range effort! all! Oh, that's spectacular! Mads Jorgensen, his first touch of the night and it's an absolute Banger! Up over the top. This ball is for Eddie Boltz and Edie with a stop a <laughs> strike! Are you kidding? An unbelievable strike! <laughs> oh my god! From Thomas any Voltsen and half the crowd can't even believe it! <laughs> oh my god, what a worldie! <laughs> what a strike, Thomas Bol- any Tough ball, but now we back to Fortune. He can hit this! And how about North Carolina? C, Dre, Fortunes, made it 2-1. Sante making a run, Lambert, oh he put it in! How in the world did he sneak that in?
1: That's a great strike, I thought that was going wide of the goal, he must have put all sorts of bend on that to get it. Out. Drogba, oh what's oh. in the water? What is in the water in Phoenix? It's 3-3,
0: it's constant again! Wow. Now that's what you call commentary for a football match, Jake. First of all, um, welcome to the to the show. Um, it's really great having the president, no less, of the USL on the show. So really grateful for you joining us. Really, I mean, how much of your career can you remember at Yeovil? Is it is it still active in your mind? It's a long time ago now, um, but yes,
1: um, it was. I was there 2003. I was there in the the first year in the football league for the club. So it was. It was a really- privilege to be playing for Yeovil in that first season. Um, a lot of good memories, yeah. I, you know, a lot of, I think the longer you, probably any footballer would say the same, the longer you come come away from the game, your memories change and, and focus more on your teammates, I think, and, and, the, and the, the laugh you had with everybody, the camaraderie. We had some good games, great experience. I remember m- many of the games and we had a good cup run that year. We hosted Liverpool uh, at uh, Huish Park and You know, it's just a good feeling about the club, good feeling about the city, and I think um, there's a good energy. You know, most of the games were sold out or had very good crowds there, and um, there's some really good players. When I think back, I've played a few different clubs. It's one of my favourite experiences, playing experiences. Um, I think the players were treated really well in the community, and the chance to play with some really good players, and we had a very exciting, attacking kind of football and, uh, and and playing up front, you know, in that environment was great. I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. Would love to have played longer. I um, uh, had, had just one season there, but it was, you know, mem- many good memories. But most of those. Uh, you know around the players i got to play with some really good guys and i do keep in touch with some of
0: them Mm. um well i guess the first i mean we want to know about the usl really more than anything else i mean obviously we wanted to bring in you over to the conversation but how did you come from Solihull moors which is the last time i actually met you do you remember i came up one afternoon um to suddenly become the president of the usl i mean that must have taken some doing didn't it
1: took a bit of time, yeah, it wasn't overnight. I mean, I, I my last few years of football, um, you know, I was realizing I'm on to the next thing and what does the next thing look like? And I, I kind of wanted a break from the the day in, day out of football. And I, so I didn't really want to go into coaching. And I, I did my coaching uh, qualifications over my last um, couple of seasons. But I wanted a break from the, 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 the cadence of football and the traveling and the scouting. And that really didn't turn me on that much. As I was playing for Solihull and then I was before that, I was playing for Tamworth. um, What I would do after training, I would go and spend time with the head of marketing and the commercial managers. And I'd spend a bit of time uh, seeing seeing what they do uh, and helping. And then my final year of playing at Solihull, um, I, you know, I actually took that position on as commercial manager uh, while I was playing. They didn't have a commercial manager at the time. So I was kind of fumbling around in the dark, trying to work a few things out, getting out there and um, trying to sell sta- sponsorships to the naming rights to the stand and doing some, you know, creative things at the club and just whatever I could do to help. Um, but I was I was getting more in- interested in the uh, the business side of the football clubs and what we could do to improve the health of the of the business. And uh, so that's kind of where I, I thought my career would go. Now I needed a. Um, you know, you, for those kind of doors to open I needed something different I couldn't just come out as a footballer I met a lot of people in the industry and certainly in England what became apparent to me was that there is a, um, a period in, of, of time when you're playing football where you're put on a pedestal so to speak, you know, you're know, you kind of looked up to or admired, it's a thing that many people want to do, but there's, a, there's an equal cynicism that goes with that and that, that you when you meet people in the in other industries, uh, there was a degree of scorn to 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 those conversations in terms of why are you trying to do what I do? You spend 10, 12 years on a football field. You should be coaching. You should be boxed into a certain environment, and you shouldn't be doing something else. And so I had a lot of those kind of conversations, which which was which was illuminating. So I, I needed something to, to, to counter that. And many uh, friends that I had, both in the U.K. and, and in the U.S., had gone back to school and done a, a, a management degree in business, a master's of a business, business administration, done their MBAs, um, and were advising me do that because it opens your mind up to a lot of different areas of the business. You'll learn a lot uh, and you'll build a network and it'll expose you to a whole uh, new set of industries. So that's what I did in my final year at Solihull. I applied to Warwick Business School. I got in there and I did a full-time MBA while I was playing and being a commercial manager. So it was a very busy sort of 18 months um and you know morning till evening i'm at school on campus learning and then in the evening i'm training with the team and playing on the weekends and trying to put into practice some of the things i'm learning on the course into that commercial manager role um you know from there that the nba ultimately gave me some credibility and and the fact that i could do that and and, and uh, you know i achieved that degree Uh, helped me in the conversations with some of the other companies that I ended up speaking with. And I ended up going to a company called Octagon. Octagon is a a big global sports sponsorship consultancy, Um, do a lot of work in player representation, do a lot of work in sports marketing. They manage the accounts like Mastercard's account in the Champions League. They manage a a lot of big sponsorship accounts in the uh, Olympics and in the World Cup. So I reached out to them and... uh, Funnily enough, um, the guy I ultimately ended up working for uh, went to university in Exeter and remembers when I played in Exeter, uh, Exeter City, uh, and so we struck a you know up a conversation. I told him, I'm coming out of the NBA. I would love to get into this world. Uh, and so I went and did a consultancy project for that company in London and ended up getting hired by them. And so I moved to London, would have been, I guess, 2010, uh, and had a couple of years working out of their London office. And just just with some amazing people, really opened my eyes to that whole world, the commercial side of sports. Um, And that was it. I was was on that track then. And an opportunity in 2013 presented itself to me to come back to the U.S. through through a mutual friend uh, of the owner of the league. It's privately owned by two individuals, but I had a mutual friend in England that knew him. I flew out to the U.S., spent some time with him. And at that time, USL was, we only had one professional division. We had 10 teams. Uh, and then I came over and I spent some time with the owner and I put a strategic plan in place to how to build the league up and, and and expand it and grow it. And it's And it's a project I just spent a year with Octagon doing in the Middle East on a professional cricket league, writing the business case for that. So I applied a lot of that to this role. And so I hired on in 2013, we had 14 employees at the league office and 10 clubs uh, on the professional side. Now we have over 50 clubs on the professional side, uh, about a little over 80 on the amateur side. Uh, we've got a six, 65 employees in the league office and and the fortunes have changed dramatically and we've been able to execute that plan for the most part. We've got great people um, and it's been an amazing, f- you know, what, seven years now I've, been at, I've been at this, uh, been at it at the USL. Mm-hmm.
0: Jake, so what what's the um, the pyramid look like at the
2: moment?
1: So what we've tried to build is a football league structure. So to explain what the USL is, the United Soccer League, um, it, it's akin to the EFL to the football league. That's what we've tried to build. We, yeah. we didn't have that in place uh, before. We had the first division, which is Major League Soccer, uh, and they have um, twenty eight or twenty six teams playing and then the second and third division it was always like the Wild West you had leagues coming and going um, and you didn't have a defined structure so in, it needed a lot of stability didn't it? Need a lot of stability a lot of clubs would come and go you didn't have maybe the right owners behind the clubs uh, to keep them going you didn't have um, enough support I would say from the federation to have a simple structure and you also have a structure here where you can have multiple leagues when you, learn you have league in the football league and a, and a, and a sort of a a set number of teams and those are the organizations in the states, you can have many many different organizations start leagues up and professional leagues as long as they meet the standards so it was a bit boom and bust in the wild west uh, i think our mission was to put a a structure in place that was stable uh that they had we had a business model behind the clubs that made sense for them and we could grow the league behind that and we've been able to do that really off the back of uh putting a sensible business model in place that attracted quality owners you know we have sensible cost structure Uh, we've been able to invest in stadium and infrastructure we had a little over three million fans last season come to the games you know we have all the games broadcast live on ESPN Um, and uh, the values of the clubs now are are, are sort of all-time high so we've started to uh, move away from a startup to a bit more of a mature league now and now we're focusing on a whole new range of opportunities and issues that we're facing. So, Jake,
2: does that does that mean then that it is a completely separate league so you won't get a promotion and relegation as such as it is here? Or so can you get promoted from, you know, into the MLS?
1: So they don't have a promotion relegation structure in the US, right? So you have closed leagues and you can still have a, multiple leagues occupying the same division um, as long as they meet certain standards. Right now you only have... One division one, you have one division two, and you actually have two division three leagues on the men's side. Um, so we operate division two and division three on on the men's side. Um, there is, but they're closed systems. So the only promotion relegation that could occur would be within our own ecosystem between. And are they
2: all are they all regional leagues as well because of the size of the country or not necessarily?
1: No, they're not. They're national leagues. So we are we're each of our divisions are national. Um, we have in our championship, uh, our top division, we split them into two conferences, so an Eastern and a West. We have 18 teams in the West, 17 teams in the East, and they play each other home and away. And then they get to a playoff and to a final where the winner of the East is the winner of the West. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to regionalize it as much as we can, but we're home in a way, and away, that's, that's, and that's the way the schedule is. Um, it's a big country, so near enough every game you get on a plane to fly. Uh, so we try, in our, in our third division, League One, most of the teams are East Coast based. And just the geography of the East Coast of America, there's more cities within a couple of hours bus ride than, than the West. The West is much more spread out. So pretty much every every team has to fly in the West. Does that include um, Canadian teams as well?
2: Because you've obviously got Montreal Impact and Toronto that are in the MLS. So does that, do they have their own teams within Canada? Or is it a bit like, say over here, if, Rangers and Celtic were in the English League, is it a bit like that?
1: Well, when they launched the MLS, there wasn't a professional league in Canada, it was in 1996. So, um, as the years went on, Montreal, Vancouver, Vancouver used to be in the USL and they moved up, um, uh, not promotion, but there is a mechanism to, to move up and pay an entry free to MLS and some teams have done that over the years. Um, So, Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal play. They're they're grandfathered in on a long-term agreement to play cross-border in in a U.S. league. Um, Last year, the Canadian Premier League formed, so they started their first professional league in a long time in Canada. Um, So, uh, we have some some teams in our amateur league that are based in Canada, and we have one team in our uh, league one in our third division that's based in Toronto. So we, we, do, we, have a, we have a limited presence in Canada now. And I think because they've got their own league forming, you know, you'll see them become a bit more um, self-sufficient. But there is a big controversy, as you guys know, about cross leagues and super leagues and what have you. And, and it's a bit of a hot topic right now.
0: What about players? Jake, have you got many um, ex-English players over there in the league?
1: Uh, yeah, it, this, yeah, we have a few. We've had... Um, You know, what what I'd say, we're about twenty percent of our league is is from is foreign. Um, You know, we have a, I'd say the large number of players in our league come from the CONCACAF region, so central um, Central uh, America, Um, and a lot of those are international players, so they play for the national team in the Gold Cup, World Cup, World Cup qualifying. Um, So a high standard of players from England. We've had some notable players. Um, uh, Joe Cole was playing in our with our team in Tampa for a few seasons has since retired uh we had two seasons with Didier Drogba uh playing over here in Phoenix um we've got a number of teams of players excuse me that played in the championship in England and had some appearances in the Premier League um you know and they come over and, and they have a great experience and they add a lot of value and and they help the players that they're playing with and Many of them have gone on to to coaching roles as well. You know, James O'Connor uh, was coaching in our league for a while. Um, played at Sheffield in England um, and Stoke. Uh, Neil Collins went Tampa, where we live here. Um, Neil Collins played at balls and a number of teams in the UK. So there's there's quite a few guys that have
0: played in the football league that are coaching over here or still playing. How's the pandemic affecting you? In uh, well, first of all, in America from a football point of view, but in particular from your point of view down at Pan, uh, Tampa?
1: Well, it's affected everyone. I mean, we've all had to shut down, right, throughout the world. We're all at different stages of our competition. You know, in the U- in Europe, you're trying to wrap it up so that mm. you can uh, prepare for the next season and work out all the final standings. Um, we're, we're just kicking off. We played one game... We, we kick off the first week of March, so we got the first game in, and then we had to shut it down. So we've got a whole season we're trying to rescue. Uh, our season would go through November. Um, and so we are in a holding pattern for both of our pro leagues and our amateur league. And, you know, it just gets harder and harder as each week goes by. We, just, we have a number of return-to-play competition models that we've got once we get the green light but the, the biggest challenge is you're not in control of this and so we are the virus is in control and we're waiting to you know we're going th- through the list of what would be needed in, to have in place in the cities that we're in to be able to play again you know and, and highly likely we're going to have to play in a very reduced capacity uh, from an attendance point of view and, and how do we get testing of players weekly that's not the access to that is not there yet how do we Have we had a lot of um, pressure on you, Jake, to make a decision
2: um, in regards to the league, whether it's a sort of a null and void um, scenario or whether you look to play it at a later date. Have you been under sort of a lot of pressure to make a decision if different clubs wanting different things? Because obviously that's what's happening in England at the moment. You go down the divisions and within the different leagues, they're making different decisions for different leagues. And it doesn't seem to be a very consistent Um, outcome and it seems a bit like somebody in your position you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't you're going to upset somebody along the way
1: well it's a real challenge it's difficult times for everybody Um, ultimately in our governance governance structure the teams will vote on anything you know any sort of decision to cancel the season will be a vote that the team's uh, have to undertake. It won't, the, the league's role, uh, the, the role we take, is to provide as much information as possible, uh, either way, for them to consider. So we're doing all the work right now. What, is, what are the implications of shutting the season down uh, versus carrying on and playing in a limited capacity of attendance? You know, so we've, we'll do all the work on that. Uh, ultimately, the decision will rest with the teams. We'll, we'll perhaps have to make some recommendations, but. Um, you know, we have a really strong group of owners who are thinking about the long-term effects of this. So not just the impact of trying to return this season. I'm going to make sure teams are healthy to, to be able to carry on in 21, 22 and 23 and beyond. Many of our teams are also on the cusp of building, you know, 60 to $80 million stadiums over the next two years. And so the perception of a club that shuts down or a league that shuts down is going to impact potentially some of those decisions and funding, etc. So there's a there's there's a there's a longer view that the teams have to take um, to weather the storm. But we also are a league that doesn't have a huge TV deal uh, to to get through, like maybe the NBA or the NFL or the or the baseball uh, have significant multi-billion dollar TV contracts. It affords them some other options, but it also it's a bit of a um, uh, it, it, you know it's a weight they have to carry as well we, we don't have that so we've, we've got to we've got to work out what's best for the club's long term uh, and we'll hopefully be able to decision in a couple of weeks
0: time. What about the the, uh, the financial implications Jake because over here there's an awful lot of talk about <clears throat> certainly league 2 um, national league even league 1 even championship teams have been mentioned that they're all on the verge of going bust players are deferring their wages they're they're cutting their wages it's it's getting you know really hairy over here now is are you having the same effect over there?
2: Could I just uh, on that one Jake sorry just jumping in can I also add you know how is it affecting the sponsorship deals? And also you mentioned the TV deals. You know, are they the clubs loo- going to be losing out on, on huge financial things from the sponsors and from the TV?
1: So, you know, it's affecting a lot of things. What I would say generally over here, the owners that we have in the league, their investment or ownership of the football club is generally, not always, but generally one of the smaller investments that they have in their portfolio. So you're dealing with, with owners that have... Um, lots of other companies and and often much larger companies and investments to deal with. So they obviously are having an impact on other companies that they own money they have in the stock market. They're all getting it from all sides as well as their investment in the club. But often, you know, our our clubs are a smaller, let's say investment. It's not, it's not to say they're small businesses, but they are generally a smaller investment of an owner's portfolio. Um, We also have a business structure um, that's quite different than, than English teams and other teams around the world, you know, in terms of the player labour spend and the ratio of that, um, you know, we are, I think in a lot of the clubs around the world, it might be depending on financial fair play, but it might be 60, 70, 80% of the cost structure is on the players. Um, that's not the case here. You know, we're about we're about less than 30%. Um, so there's not a massive cost burden uh, on, on the clubs over here in comparison. Um, you know with respect our teams are very dependent on uh, match day revenue but a lot of those tickets would have been sold in advance and a lot of the sponsorship money is already in and we were about 20 to 30% up um, on average from last season so the the calculus the teams have to make is how do we keep as much of that revenue in the building as we can cancelling the season you're going to see it all fly out so that's why some form of competition or games that we might play this year is better than not even if it's with a limited capacity audience because all of our games are live on ESPN they'll be able to keep some they'll be able to keep a portion or a large portion of the sponsorship revenue they've already secured as long as they're playing and those partners are exposed and are getting some exposure on on, on TV um, and we have a different multi-layer TV deal but we have all of our games uh, streamed on ESPN's OTT platform the ESPN Plus so everybody fans will pay a subscription 4 99 a month and they can see all the games and all the teams anytime they want. Um, and then we have about 20 plus games that are on national television. Uh, and then the teams, we license the teams the right to have all of their games aired locally on local TVD on local television stations and sort of geo fence to that, to that market in that region. Um, you know, so if Yoval was playing in the, in the USL, Yoval would appear on national TV. It would have all of its games on ESPN digital platform. But you can have all of your home games or all of your home and away games or however many games you select to be aired on a local TV station as well. So those are all opportunities to drive revenue from a sponsor point of view in the absence of Ticket buyers coming to the actual game if we have to play behind closed doors. what I would, what, Where I think we'll go here is we'll have limited attendance. So you might have, you know, a thousand or less or a couple of thousand or less. And that will increase as we get towards, you know, September, October, November. Uh, more people
0: will be allowed into the buildings. How do you think cost- if the Oval was it. to play um, over there in that league? Do you think they'd, you know, what what sort of level are, are your leagues compared to, say, the Oval? I mean, obviously, we're in the National League now, which is, uh, you know, it's basically the conference in your day. Um, you know, what sort of level are, are your teams?
2: Can I just touch in on that, Jake, before you answer that one? Sorry. I was just interested to see as well, uh, just touching on what A B says there, but what is the, the wages like, um, the cost for clubs sort of per month? I mean, are, are we talking almost similar kind of size wage structures that you've got over here in England or is it very different
1: It's a different structure I mean our players tend to skew a bit a bit younger and um, there's you know average age is about 24. Most of our teams are providing um, insurance for players as well private insurance most of our teams are providing housing for the players um, provide apartments for the players to live in. As, as well as salary and they're providing per diems for food, so the it, it, the contracts are different and, the, and they're more of a total compensation type um, package versus just you know a strict salary and bonus structure, which is typical, more typical of England. Um, you know, it's a uh, it, it it depends in terms of the quality. You know, I, I think somewhere somewhere between a League Two, League One um, sort of level quality, I think, and we have some. some there's some tremendous policy in the league, as I said. Um, you know, we've gotta have a number of players playing in the World Cup. We have when the, certainly when the World Cup comes to the US in twenty six in an expanded fashion, you have a lot of USL players in playing at that level. You have a lot of internationals from you know, uh, a lot of a lot of the Caribbean and I think it's from a the, you know it's a good quality and uh, I think it's somewhere probably you know akin to a League Two um, possibly a League One in, in, in some instances so it's a good it's a decent level you know we're averaging a little over 6,000 fans a game um, and, and we've got probably seven or eight teams that average over 10,000 a game uh, and so it's well attended, well supported and it's, you know, it's good value, good entertainment. Is it well supported away from
2: home? So do you get many fans that follow their teams around? Because obviously America being a big country and I'm, I'm sure there's other countries within Europe as well where the following for away fans isn't as strong as
1: it is here in England. So I saw a graphic uh, I think it was last year and they overlaid the US onto The UK and Europe, and you know, some of our away games were like from you know Scotland to like you know Southern Italy or something. You know, it was like the the amount of miles the players have to cover, Uh, and so you know, we don't see it in huge numbers, but as we've expanded the league, we've been able to regionalize a bit more and build those um rivalry games, you know, And, and so we do see. Whether it was Louisville and, and Cincinnati or St. Louis and, and Louisville, Indianapolis and, and Louisville, there's a couple of cities that are, with, are within, let's say, you know, uh, you know, an hour to three hours drive. And so they will see fans traveling. You know, and we have a few destination cities as well. right? We have a team in Las Vegas. We have a team in Tampa. We have teams in Nashville. Um, and so there's there's a Memphis, there's the cities where that are fun cities to go for a weekend and go. Watch there's a,
2: I wouldn't mind an away trip to Vegas.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, cheap hotel rooms right now. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Question:
2: Can I just yep. jump in there and ask a question? Um, Jake, where do you um see the game uh developing um in the, in the USL over the next ten years, or or more so, where do you want it to be? Realistically, where do they want it to be, or where is there like a dream where you want to aim for the stars, or is there more like a realistic pattern to see whether you can get to a certain level or, or above?
1: So, for us, you know, we, when I got here, we put a 10 year plan in place. That's that's you know, that took us to 2020, um, and we've, we've achieved a, a, a significant amount. Then we've stabilized the game, I think, certainly in the lower divisions. We've got great players, we've built 22 stadiums, we've got uh, a broadcast deal. Now they never had a broadcast deal like this outside of uh, the top division, um, and so now, and we're getting strong attendance and, and, and really sort of tribal connection to clubs now in, in cities across America that never had access to a team of their own. So we've achieved a lot. What you know, I look forward now to 26. That's that's the next milestone in the US, really, with the World Cup coming here in 2026. Um, that's when the eyes of the world are back on the US. Really, um, you know, from the days of '94 World Cup, which I think remains the most lucrative World Cup in history. This is this is going to be a big one. So the question for us is: What kind of league do we want to be when that roadshow comes to town? And, and what's the effect? And how do we benefit from that? Um, the major thing for us right now is to build stadiums for our teams in the right locations because. As I said, we've built 22 stadiums. We've got um, really high-performing clubs and good businesses. But unless you own and control the building that you're in, uh, it's not going to be sustainable long-term. So you have to – we're still – in some cities, we're tenants of buildings. We are – in multi-sport stadiums. Yeah. Uh, you're not in the stadium that showcases the game in the right way, we're sharing some baseball stadiums. And so until you control all of the revenue streams and you can program not just the, the 20 football games you're gonna have at home, but you can you can program other events in the building and have revenue coming in 365 days a year from the stadium. Um, that's when it changes the, the, the P&L overnight for our teams. We've got teams that have gone from renting a building Um, to opening a 14,000, 15,000-seat soccer stadium of their own. And they've gone into the positive overnight just because the amount of things you can do with that stadium. And so for us now, it's the the big push now is to, as we mature, over the next six years is to have everybody owning and controlling their own soccer stadium. So we've got some amazing stadiums that are going to come online. And if you go into – if you have a look at Louisville in Kentucky – Online and see some of the pictures of that stadium. That's that's a good blueprint of what we're building. Uh, we've got a nice stadium in San Antonio, Texas, uh, a tremendous stadium in uh, Rio Grande Valley, Texas. A lot of other projects in the works in Indianapolis, Colorado Springs, and a whole host of cities. But that we move from a five thousand seat building to a ten to a twelve to a fifteen thousand seat stadium that we can sell naming rights and and program other events. Um, so that's the big push because that makes the business. Uh, profitable. That makes the business make sense. Um, from then, we carry on investing in all the things we're doing. We're going to have a fully built-out academy structure. We're starting an academy league of our own in 2021. We're starting to see the value of young players in America, and we want to create a, 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 a marketplace and, and move some of these players around and move them on and, and create a revenue stream that doesn't really exist in any kind of meaningful way. We want to have... Um, You know, we want to build upon the media and the commercial platforms that we've started on over the last few years. Um, We haven't had a lot to sell in years gone by, but now we have a lot to sell. We have a huge footprint across the U.S. We have the number one sport in the world. You know, we have a coveted demographic of millennial audience that are watching and consuming the games. Um, We have that that local grassroots activation. We can provide companies in cities all across America. Um, and, And so we've got a lot to offer potential sponsors and media partners now, um, as the media landscape shifts towards digital streaming, we're in a good position to capitalize on that. So, I think as I, as I look forward to six years from now, we want this league to have proper soccer stadium and transform the soccer stadium landscape in America. That, you know, in England, everyone has a football stadium at, at, at all the levels down from the top down, but we, that's not the case here. So, we've got to do that first and foremost. Does it
2: work in the same way as the MLS, Jake, in terms of? So you get new franchises that are that are built and then they're added to the league. Um, and there's been quite a few in the last few years. I'm thinking Orlando and obviously David Beckham has just kicked off with um, into Miami. Is that seen as a, a, as a positive in America? Cause for example, in England over here, if you've got new kids on the block, you know, they're seen as plastic, they've got money, they've got no fans, that kind of thing. Um, Obviously, a lot of the new teams is built on new franchises. Is that seen as a positive for um, soccer in America?
1: That's all right. Um, I've got another five minutes, Adrian. I'll push for another five. Um, It's a good thing because, um, you know, it's a very big country and a lot of people don't have a team of their own in their own city. And so what you find is there's a huge number of football fans in America but if they don't have a team of their own in their city, they tend to be watching the Premier League or, or leagues, mm-hmm. uh, and they don't support the domestic league. Once you put a team in their market that they can get behind, then it changes the game. You know, for them, it gives them an outlet, gives them something you can just tangible you can touch, and also gets them to follow the domestic game a bit more because they're now included in it. You know, we've launched teams in, in a place called Albuquerque, New Mexico, last year. Um, a city with no real history of football and they led the league in attendance for us last year with over 15,000 uh, fans wow. per game on average. Um, fantastic! transformed the, the sense of pride that those folks feel about coming from that community. and You saw that in MLS with Atlanta when they launched um, fits and starts of football in Atlanta over the years. And they started a few years ago and had 70,000 people come into a soccer games in Atlanta. So. I think the perception is different you know and each new team comes in has to try and do it a bit bigger and better than the previous one And um, but it, it's not seen in a negative light here there's plenty more opportunity for teams to come in Is into there the a league.
2: restriction at all? Because course, you have to be careful that the league doesn't get too
0: big
1: no restrictions we we have a sort of goal in mind you know, sort of mid to high 30s in terms of a number that makes sense for us From a home and away competitive point of view we're, we're kind of you know we're, ne- we're nearly there now we, we just need to build our league one numbers up we have 12 clubs there
0: so we want to build that somewhere in the mid to high 30s as well i'm just worried that they're going to cut us off and we haven't got a chance to say thank you that's, that's what i'm panicking about <laughs> <laughs> but because uh, oh <laughs> with that it cut us off Well, there you go. One minute he was there and one minute he was gone. Because Mr. Zoom decided we'd had our 45 minutes. So I hope you enjoyed it all. Um, Jake has promised to come back and join us again very, very soon. So like, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. So we will let you know on Facebook and Twitter when that's going to happen. But in the meantime keep listening to Three Valleys Radio and, uh, have a very good day. To take you out of this place, someone you can land ahead
1: in return for grace. It's a beautiful day.